righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Well, my name is Pat Bills. I'm from Dallas, Texas. And I've been the preacher, uh, lead minister, whatever you call the person that talks the most on Sunday morning, that's me. Um, I've been there, we have been there 14 years, my wife Deborah, who's back here on the back row, uh, cheering me on. Uh, she felt sorry for me because she was sure my parents would come, and then she wanted to come to make sure there were at least three people here. So, uh, I'm honored that the rest of you are here. Um, let me start with a few uh, prefaces that I think are important for what I want to talk about for the next few minutes. First of all, some important things that you need to know about me is that I had a deep love for my tribe and tradition of the Churches of Christ. Um, I have very little interest in doing away with our family name and more of an interest in redeeming our family name. And when I say redeeming our family name, um, there's been a lot that needs to be redeemed as it's been exposed by the last five or six years. Held in tension with that is I have a great sense of hopefulness for the flourishing or the reflourishing or the restoring or the returning of our tradition to something that hopefully is healthy. And what I would like to do for the next several minutes is perhaps define health in a different way in light of my own congregational experience, which is my third preface. I love my local church. And I love my local church uh, to the point that um, I am not from Texas. Uh, I am a missionary to Texas. And if you think that's a ridiculous thing to, to say or to hear, um, I would love to take you to our family farm in the middle of Tennessee and walk amongst the, the smells of Angus cows and, you know, fried okra and grilled squash and, you know, Angus steak. Um, even though you can get Angus steak in Dallas, I'm, I'm very much uh, driven from a rural setting and I found myself living in a very urban setting, which comes with all kinds of interesting questions. Uh, the reason I'm calling this class the path of most resistance is because my hunch is most of your churches have experienced some type of resistance in the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And what I would like to say is that um, based on my own experience, our own experience, let me get the right teleprompter there, is that there are particular ways that we have measured success in our local congregations. Now, I realize that a lot of this is things that you already know or already thought about, but when I when we entered our current church, Island Oaks Church of Christ, um, back in 2009, I think from the outside looking in, people would say we were a successful church. And the reason we were a successful church is because we measured success by the following distinctives. We had a large membership. Uh, I mean, I don't want to tell you that our, our membership when, when we arrived there was somewhere between 12 and 1,500. Uh, our weekly giving was around 
$45,000 a week. Uh, we had great programs. We had an enormous facility. People in our neighborhood really couldn't even tell what the building was because it looked like a gigantic mall. Okay? There was a lot of connection within the church. People described a deep sense of connectedness. It was a place for grace. If you know anything about the history of Island Church of Christ, um, the preacher that was there for 25 years uh, did a lot of work for divorced people. And we have several people when we first moved there who were not just married, but married again because they met in this flourishing singles program of the 80s and 90s at Highland Oaks. There was a great sense of social relief in the city. We had a, a neighborhood pantry that fed lots and lots of people throughout the week. I would say that there was some celebrity status of the Highland Church of Christ. In fact, it would shock me if some of you hadn't already heard of the Highland Church of Christ. Um, and that's just a point of interest for me because the more hopefully that you get to know my wife and I and our family, I'm, I'm about as interested in celebrity status as I am, you know, buying sweet potatoes at a restaurant. They're just not very good, okay? Um, our mission budget um, had a, a lot of dollars attached to it. We had lots of missionaries that we had supported, and there was a high value on the amount of information that was communicated in our gatherings. We had a thriving adult education program. However, when my wife and I arrived with our three boys, uh, soon to be four, this is what we heard. We, we are very tired. We are down. Um, there's a sense of loss. And we don't know what our next chapter is going to look like. And even though from maybe the outside looking in, it looked to be successful, um, there was a deep sense of low morale and disappointment. Only to be exposed to the fullest extent by COVID. Okay, am I resonating with anybody else's church experience? So now what we find is we're swimming in the sea of churches that are shrinking and membership that's in decline. Our amount of weekly giving is down. And let me go ahead and give you some stats right now. Our, our membership, if you would like to think in terms of membership, is about 200 people right now. Our amount of weekly giving is more than half of what it was when I arrived 14 years ago. We just sold our building. Uh, and there are all kinds of different things that I can tell you about that kind of stand in contrast to this, which I'll get to in a moment. But I would say that the Highland Church of Christ is healthier than it was 14 years ago. And stands in contrast to some of the classic metrics of church success or what some of you might call church growth. So when I say church growth, I don't want you to automatically assume or to think that I mean growth in terms of the number of people, but rather growth in terms of maturity. And here's what I would like to say. If there's anything that you hear this morning that might serve as an encouragement, it is this. These are these, my friend Jonathan Storm's sermon last night. 
A small church does not mean that you are a failing church. Now, there, there could be lots of things that could be improved or could be uh, done, done better, but there's a difference in a successful church and a thriving, spiritually mature church. Thriving meaning big numbers, big programs, big facilities. And as I titled my class, if you want to move towards new growth strategies that look less like the church growth strategies of the 80s and 90s and more like what I would say is an acknowledgement of the decline of churches in general, it's going to be a path of most resistance. Two of the things that were driving um, this resistance uh, were we have a historical marker right outside of our church building. Uh, which is fascinating to me. I've never been to a Church of Christ that had a historical marker, but this, this was staring at us every time we entered into um, our atrium, which, by the way, wasn't even a gathering point. Do, do you know the largest space in our old facility was the actual worship center? That was the largest gathering place. There, there wasn't a, a fellowship hall or a vestibule, as some of you might uh, like to say. It, it was simply... Um, a, a space for collecting large numbers of people. And what I would like to suggest is, without even realizing it at first, is we were being held captive by who we were, and we were not able to imagine anything different because of that. And it was staring us in the face every single week when we walked in. I mean, listen to how interesting... Some might characterize as arrogant. This last paragraph is throughout its long history, the congregation has maintained ties to its church founders. Programs such as the food pantry and support for missionaries connect members to their community at the local and local levels in the church. A founding congregation for others in the area remains a spiritual home to its members. Isn't that interesting that it would characterize itself as a founding home for other churches in the area? Now, what's even more interesting than that is it wasn't just a historical marker. It was also the facility that was created. That is not a deer stand that you're looking at. That is a bell tower that several of my members paid tens of thousands of dollars for to erect. This all happened before I arrived. And this bell tower, the point of the bell tower was to serve as a marker that this was, in fact, a church building and not a mall. But... Perhaps if people heard the bells, they would be attracted and come into the facility. Fascinating, isn't it? That church success was measured by how many people showed up on Sunday morning, how grand the space was on Sunday morning, and how we could provide people on Sunday morning. Well, there was a choice that we needed to make. And when I say we, I mean our, our shepherds, our ministers, because we had become convinced that we needed to take a different path. And what we were willing to do with a lot of prayer, discernment, and tremendous courage, especially from our shepherds, was take a hard look at ourselves, acknowledge what wasn't working, and then make some decisions in order to move forward. So what I would like to do is I would like to go through a, a few things strategies 
that, that became distinctives for the Highland Oaks Church. If some of this is helpful to your own context, wonderful. But keep in mind, this is all contextually for the Highland Oaks congregation. Um, but, you know, there have been a lot of people that have, from the outside looking in, continued to characterize us as uh, a church that is failing simply because of what it's not what it was. And we were wanting to envision something that could be. Okay. Um, all right. Let me stop right there. Everybody tracking with me? Questions, concerns, cries of anguish? All right. We made a commitment to a higher view of Scripture in light of the Jesus story. If you've been around the Church of Christ at all for the last several hundred years, uh, we have made a commitment to a higher view of Scripture in light of whose story? Probably not Jesus, more likely Paul. And there's a difference in life, reading the story of Scripture through the lens of Jesus rather than through the lens of Paul. Um, one of the things that we wanted to commit to was a return to the Gospels as a foundational narrative for the life of our church. So very simply... What we decided to do, even in terms of our weekly preaching, is we have preached through a different gospel at the first of the year for the last 13 years. And we just alternate Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So when somebody asks me, what are you preaching on? Um, I, I say in a somewhat facetious tone, Jesus. But I really do mean Jesus. We are trying to return to the Jesus story. It doesn't mean that we ignore the Old Testament. It doesn't mean we ignore the prophets. It doesn't mean we ignore Paul. It just means that Jesus is going to be the lens through which we interpret our current experience. One of the books that I would strongly encourage you to get, and if you haven't already, I would be shocked because it just came out last week. Um, it's a book by the name of Alan Kirsch. I heard um, Alan uh, last week at a conference called the Missio Alliance Conference in Chicago. Um, Alan and Michael Frost wrote The Shaping of Things to Come, but that rings a bell. Uh, Hirsch has also wrote, you know, Reformation, uh, Reformation. Sorry, I'm trying to take a play on that word. But Hirsch would say this. Um, churches need to experience metanoia, which is where we get our word, English word for what? Repent. And Hirsch is trying to make an argument that Repentance is not always a negative thing, but repentance is a thing that continually leads you back to an understanding or a fresh understanding of who Jesus is in your world and in your time. So at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, what is Jesus' first words? Metanoia, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or near. You know, believe the good news. It's this idea that churches have got to be willing to not just say they're sorry, but in true metanoia, it's turning from one direction and heading the other. And one of Hirsch's fascinating observations is that churches had an incredible opportunity to do this in light of COVID, but once COVID was over, they returned to the very same patterns that got them stuck in the first place. So Hirsch would argue, suggest that for churches to move forward and flourish again, metanoia must take place. And it's not so much a negative reality as it is a positive.
positive move forward into a reality of which Jesus creates. And I don't know how you do that unless Jesus takes central stage or becomes the foundation of the cornerstone of your church again. By the way, what is the hallmark of what our churches are called? We are churches of Christ. One of my favorite things that my home church did um, when they moved locations, they went from the Bel Air Church of Christ to the Church of Christ at Cedar Lane, is if you look at their sign in Tullahoma, Tennessee, which is a rural town of about 25 or 30,000 people, guess which word is the biggest on their sign? Christ. It's like you drive up and you say, there's the Church of Christ at Cedar Lane. And I'm thinking, yes, that's exactly what we need to be about. So what that did is it led us to a posture of getting serious about what was holding us back. And, and let me kind of unpack something that um, obviously didn't originate with me, but, but I want to use uh, a few words that may sound a little more academic and practical, but they have some very serious implications. Who's familiar with the word ecclesiology? Ecclesiology is the way we think about Church, ecclesiology, missiology, and Christology, okay? The way we think about those things. In, in my opinion, the High Oaks Church began with a high view of ecclesiology, where the church and the practice or the forms of the church drove everything the church did, the way it found expression in the neighborhood, and the way it interpreted scripture. And the idea was to get more people inside to the church. Now, of course, we had mission, but mission was kind of a thing that we did once a, a year on Mission Sunday. And if we needed more money, we would talk about Mission Sunday. But of course, Christ was the head. That was the assumption. But because Christ was the head, we found ourselves focused on how we did church and mission was just a thing that we did. So what we did was we began to ask the question, if we're going to come back to a higher view of Scripture where Christ is head, what would it look like if Jesus was able to interpret your mission and then out of that interpretation of mission came the way the church was for the, uh, for the mission of God in the world? Um, I'm getting this from um, Christopher Wright, Mission of God and Loving the Bible's Grand Narrative. You can always go back to some of the original missional church material in Leslie Newton and whatnot, but this is at the core, I think, of what they have been trying to say for the last 20 or 30 years. You have to quit asking church questions first and get back to asking Jesus questions. And I know that may sound simple and that, that may sound like it's something that you already know, but it really should move you to rethinking how you embody or embrace mission as a witness of a church that belongs primarily to Christ. Is that helpful for you? Because this right here was an aha moment for me and moving towards this has been the path of most resistance. And, and by the way, if you think about the church in Acts, and, and Acts is over here, Acts really is flowing out of a mission that finds itself rooted in the story of Jesus. So, 
because we were interested in asking Jesus questions that flowed into a particular way of embodying mission, we had to embrace the depth of past church growth metrics. So let me go through what some of that looks like. And by the way, this is not just semantics. I'm speaking from a 14-year journey that we have really tried to embody some very specific ways of being. First of all, we've moved from talking about membership to talking about discipleship. Um, if you think about church membership, uh, of course it could be argued that membership is a biblical word, but I would, uh, I would suggest that, that membership is not biblical in terms of how our culture interprets membership. I have a gym membership. Um, I have a, a membership at, at Kroger or Tom Thumb, and the point of having a membership is to reap the rewards of that which I pay for week in and week out. How many of you have had parents of children or students frustrated by your church's lack of programming because in some ways they are saying, I'm not getting what I'm paying for? There may be some work that you need to do with asking, are you after membership or if you after discipleship? Of course, that could be unpacked for several minutes. So instead of amount of weekly giving, we've looked for balanced participation. Do you know how many families made up the $45,000 a week when I arrived 14 years ago? Six. Six families made up about 80% of that giving. Now, close to 60% of our members make up our weekly giving. So even though it's half of what it was, which is the healthier church? The church that has a bigger budget or the one that has a more balanced participation? Now on the outside looking in, you might look at that and say, well, your church is really struggling. You have failed because your contribution's been cut in half. I would say, well, we've successfully defeated a few people managing the expectations of the entire church. Instead of a program and facility, we've moved to thinking about what does the church look like for the people and in a neighborhood. So it's not so much uh, the facility that's driving our questions, but what, does our, what do our neighbors do? Uh, what do our neighbors need? Here's, here's what's fascinating. So we just sold our church building uh, to a mega church, and we we bought a building that was a Baha'i temple that used to be a Presbyterian church. So we're actually going back to our roots. And it's 1,500 feet from our current location. And the reason we did that was, well, one of the reasons we did that is because uh, it kind of fell in our, our lap cost-wise, which is another story for another time. But it had a, a great sanctuary with stained glass. I mean, it's beautiful. But guess what the sanctuary had? It had sloped floors with theater seating. So when we put together a design team and a transition team of not primarily ministers, but our lay people, do you know what, what the, the top priority for them was? Was to level the worship center's floor so it could be used for the sake of our community. Fascinating. Now, was that just a good idea, or was that coming from a 10 to 12, 14 year focus on the story of the Gospels or re understanding mission? I hope it's coming from a steady leaning into Jesus and mission. 
Um, instead of connection within, I'm hoping we're, we're moving towards a connection for all. We have done a lot of work in ourselves about, you know, what does it mean to um, offer a welcoming space for the LGBTQ community? Um, that is a path of most resistance. What does partnership look like with uh, those uh, of the opposite gender? I will be the first to tell you that um, our church would have been would have flourished in, in dramatic ways if we had had women speaking into um, our assemblies much sooner than they already have. Instead of just a place for grace, what if it became a place for maturity? Instead of social relief in the city, what would it look like to have social relationships? Um, quick story, and if this sounds critical to what you're currently doing, I wouldn't offer it as a criticism, as more as just a point of... Um, just think about this. When I first got there, uh, we did um, angel tree ornaments and everybody bought gifts and we brought the gifts and lined them up on the stage in December and we had this huge prayer over all these gifts and there were bicycles and target bags and then we felt so good about what we were doing in the city until we asked our neighbors what they really needed. You know what they told us they needed? We don't need gifts, we need gift cards. Because I don't want my kids thinking that the church bought them gifts. I would rather the kids think that I, as a parent, was able to provide them with Christmas. We thought, huh, isn't that a fascinating uh, turn of events that the church doesn't get the credit? The parents of the kids actually get the credit. So what we've done over the last several years is instead of collecting gifts, we've collected gift cards. That has been a huge point of resistance. Because our people want to tangibly see what they have done. Isn't that fascinating? And it's really hard to convince people to give money towards gift cards, even though that's what our neighbors who we built relationships said, this is what we really need. Instead of celebrity status, we're trying to become cruciform servants. Cruciform, I get that language from Leonard Allen and from others, where a church that's centered on the cross is not about celebrity, unless you characterize a celebrity as riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Um, instead of a mission budget, we have a missional sending where we want our entire church to feel like they're actually on mission rather than their partnership in mission is to give money to something and hopefully get a report on it once a year. Um, not that that's unimportant. It's very important. We have missionary partners, but we would like our church to be in relationship with those missionary partners rather than just uh, financial supporters. And instead of membership, uh, I shouldn't have, said, shouldn't have put membership, it should be information. Instead of information, we're looking for transformation. What, what does spiritual depth look like? What, what does spiritually mature discipleship look like? What would baptism and communion look like if it was more transformational rather than simply informational? Uh, and you know this already, but doing hard things is hard. Um, it's a fascinating quote from Glennon Doyle. Um, being human is not hard because you're doing it wrong. It's hard because you're doing it right. <laughs> you will never change the fact that being human is hard, so you must change your idea that it was ever supposed to be easy. Could the same thing be said for church? Being a church is not hard because you're doing it wrong. It's hard because you're doing it right. I mean, my goodness, read the pastoral epistles. This was the path of most resistance. I can still remember sitting 
at the AC lecture several years ago and hearing Carol Osborne teach an expository class in the book of Philippians. And Carol Osborne says, I need to begin my class by telling you that the book of Philippians has little to do with joy and everything to do with church conflict. And I perked up my ears because I was a good youth minister teaching about the basics of joy from the book of Philippians. And then he took me to chapter 4 and he said, I want to urge Yodia and Syntyche to get along because they need to be conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I'm like, man, this is a church that's where it's really hard. And then I start to read Corinthians and I'm like, man, this is a hot mess, right? And then you start reading other epistles and you even read Paul's charge to Timothy where he says you need to endure discipleship as discipline, train yourselves to be godly. It's a toil, it's a struggle. You need to fight the good fight. This isn't supposed to be easy. Now, I love, I keep going back to what uh, Jonathan said last night because it's fresh on my mind. But, you know, when Jonathan said at the very end, were you all at the keynote last night? When Jonathan said at the very end, loving people is hard. It is hard work. And yet we live in a culture that wants things to be easy. Let me give you a theory. I wasn't planning on saying this this morning, but I, but I wanted to say it anyway. Um, in my opinion, COVID has taken away people's ability to do more hard things, especially those in their 20s and 30s. What I've experienced, what we've experienced at our church is that we pushed and pushed and pushed and took the path of most resistance COVID happened, people came back and they're like, I'm tired. I can't do anything else. It's hard. And my response is, well, whoever told you church was supposed to be easy? Now, I think it could be easier. I'm hoping it doesn't always have to be this hard. But anyway, I think I made a point. Uh, number five, uh, taking a listening and learning posture. Um, I heard last week at the Missio Alliance Conference that um, the church in Acts never took off because of the amount of information that was shared, but rather it was the story they were willing to tell. And then I began looking at it through the lens of listening to a particular story. Do you remember that moment? And of course you do. In Acts chapter 10, when, when Peter goes and eats with the Gentiles, and then Peter shows up at home base, and all these circumcised believers are... Uh, a little uh, curious and skeptical of what happened with the uncircumcised people. If you look there at Acts chapter 11, the NRSV, which by the way is the Bible that Jesus read, translates it that, that Peter told them, explained to them step by step what happened. The NIV, which is usually not my favorite translation, but it is here, uh, Acts chapter 11 verse 5, it says, and Peter sat down and told them the whole story. In other words, the people in the Jerusalem Council were listening to a first-hand account or a story about what God was doing in their midst. Do you know what changed the heart and mind of the Highland Oaks Church about women's participation in the assemblies? It wasn't the study. It was the stories of the young girls and the moms and the dads that had grown up in our church saying something needs to change. It's not that the information wasn't important. It just was surprising that the stories were as important as the information. It's fascinating. 
even if you listen to our young people, um, there's a great book that's come out recently by Haley Gray Scott that talks about six vital questions for young adults uh, for a church in crisis. You know, more encouraging reading if you're not convinced that the church is in crisis. But here's what's interesting. Six questions for young adults. Um, and by the way, I've got a house full of them. I've got a 22, a 19, a 14, and an 11-year-old. They're all boys. If you're doing the math, that's four. If you have some wife, she has five kids. You can do that math as well. But the six questions that Haley Grace Scott would say that young adults are asking are, am I alone and unloved? They want a church that answers the following questions. Am I broken beyond repair? Where do I belong? Can I trust Christian leaders? Why would they ask that question? Because they've been exposed to scandal after scandal. I mean, you can be grateful that you're not a Catholic caught up in that scandal. But boy, we've got a lot of scandals in our own selves. Can I trust Christian leaders? Can I ask hard questions? Young adults want to be a part of a community that asks hard questions. And six, how are we making a difference? How am I making a difference? But it's also how are what? How are we making a difference? And if I could be so bold, for many, many years, we thought that we could answer these questions by having an instrumental worship service. And I'm just curious if our young adults are driven by that or if that's what those of us in our 40s or 50s, what we really wanted when we were 20. So surely that's what they want. Well, I've got news for you. My four boys are way more concerned with authenticity than they are the particular form that that authenticity takes. They would much rather see somebody in their 60s or 70s on a praise team weeping at a song than they would somebody doing a pretty cool guitar riff. If you were in Fallon Barton's session yesterday, um, Fallon was speaking to these six questions. Um, if you didn't hear it and if you weren't there, it's really not going to capture the essence of what Fallon did because she was showing slides of creation as she was talking about creation. And what I kept hearing over and over again is this is what would help me to feel loved. If you love the creation that I am a part of, then I will be loved. I am not broken beyond repair because what God creates is not broken beyond compare. I mean, it's just over and over again confirmation of these questions. And then finally, um, number six, <laughs> we had to really make a strong commitment to the journey. And when I say journey, this is not something uh, for the High Oaks Church, this is not something that took a couple of years in order to course correct. Uh, we are still very much in process. That's why I like what Eugene Peterson says, it's a long obedience in the same direction. Um, and Peterson does this through uh, the exploration of several psalms. Um, but he's reacting to this microwave discipleship where there's discipleship that's kind of instantly uh, transformed. And, and I guess that's why I have seen great value in sticking with a place for the long haul. And it hasn't always been easy. It's currently not easy. But part of me says, well, should it have ever been easy? And last, I would say I am sure grateful that we've had people that have surrounded us to walk alongside us as we've had this long obedience, you know, in the same direction. 
So the last gathering in our old space happened last Easter, Easter of 2022. And we have been tabernacling in the wilderness since last Easter. Um, we are at the mercy of the city of Dallas and at the mercy of the, the current um, supply chain of all things that are needed in order to renovate a facility. You know, we ordered air conditioning units um, in November of last year. Uh, they're set to arrive July 1. I mean, it has been a hard, hard journey to help our people hang on. But I, I think that we are at a really, really healthy place because we are able to see where God is taking us without being held captive by returning to where we've been. And I'll be honest, we've hurt a lot of people along the way. Um, and there are mistakes that, that we have made that I would be more than happy to own. And um, there are things that I would have done differently. But I think that idea of metanoia, of, of turning towards something that doesn't, you know, lead us to back to this and rather looks more like this gives me a lot of hope. Okay, so I've drunk on and on about twice as long as I do um, on a Sunday. What questions, feedback, um, I'm open to anything or we can just quit early and go to the Again, go ahead. In the process of, um, of fighting resistance. Yes. What is the thing that you've been willing to die on the hill for? It's a great question. I, I think the thing that we, that Hotelopes has been willing to die on the hill for, is a return to a core value of discipleship which is we are about loving, growing, and sending disciples. And everything that we do or think about is in terms of how, how does this get us to discipleship rather than membership? How does this get us to transformation rather than just information? Um, I would say that's what we've been willing to die on the hill for. People that show up to our church who are new are shocked that we're not instrumental. And I'm not saying that that's not a possibility. That's just not the path we've chosen. Because for, for the people that we have talked to, um, an instrumental service, at least for us, uh, isn't an end to transformation right now. now. I'm not saying that's not the case for some other churches, but it hasn't been for us. I, I think leaning into people, a more equitable participation among genders, that seemed to rise to the surface. Why? Uh, because of discipleship. Um, we, we needed to hear from more people at communion. And we, we, we needed to be formed by that table experience in some ways that our current space wouldn't allow. Here's what's interesting. When we sold our building, who do you think was most upset? Older people or younger people? <laughs> Surprising. We had so many of our older generation that came up to me like, I never like this place anyway. <laughs> it's fascinating. I felt like I was coming 
you know, the reunion arena every time we had Sunday worship. And it was so disheartening to walk into a space that just felt dead in them. And nobody wanted to admit, hey, what if we sold this place? We can't sell this place. There's a historical marker outside. Well, why not? I mean, we had outgrown our capacity to imagine anything else because of what we were staring at every single week. And what's fascinating is that our shepherds had, had put together a team and we had actually prayerfully discerned to stay in our current location until this other church came along after we had already decided that and said, would you like for us to buy your building? So it, it, we didn't put this on the market. Nor, I would argue, did we sell because we were shrinking. We sold because we were committed to this. Yes, sir. How did you help your shepherds move beyond a fear of letting go and focus? Because in a lot of things that we deal with, that, that's the hanging is our shepherds tend to, to respond more out of fear than living in. Exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, that, that's a really difficult question, and I think that probably has to do more with, with your own context than it does with mine. But what I can say is that um, I think our shepherds were at a turning point where they knew out of a collective sense of, of discernment that something needed to change. What I didn't say practically speaking, when I got there 14 years ago, we were seven and a half million dollars in debt. Three years ago, we were two and a half million dollars in debt. We decided to save because that debt was going to be paid off by 2032, 2033. But here a church comes along and now we are out of debt. We have a building and we have a sizable endowment that's going to enable us to do ministry in our community. None of that we went and looked for. I mean, so much of this, I wish I could say we sat down and mapped out how this was going to happen. But in, in, from where I sit, our, our shepherds didn't really have a choice because fear looked like returning back to what didn't work. So it took a lot of courage from our shepherds. Yes, sir? At your point, you mentioned uh, putting to, uh, getting serious about things that were holding Yes. Particularly that list of things that are holding you back. Like, for example, the the, pre, the ministers and preachers may have one list, but the elders may have another list, and the congregation may have a, have a different perspective. Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, it's a um, that's, that's a great question. I, I think that maybe part of the, the, the two questions at hand are I don't think there's any way for leadership to be separate from the church to be separate from the ministry staff. Because in all honesty, Roger, that's what I experienced when we arrived 14 years ago, was there was a very fractured vision of who the church should be. So what we had to do was rally around a vision for who the church could and should be. Because a lot of people still wanted this. How can we get back to doing church where 2,500 people are here? Rather than how can we get back to doing church that flows out of a particular mission, that flows out of a particular understanding of the gospel. So I'm hoping, uh, I banked on the fact that the humility of our shepherds and the brokenness of what I heard would lead us to form a healthy partnership. And although I may characterize me as the lead minister, I, I feel very strongly that we are very much in partnership in moving forward.
Yeah. Um, thank you for coming, really. Um, I'm honored that, that you came. Um, my last slide, um, I hope that you will uh, reach out and uh, that is my cell phone to remind you that I am a missionary in Texas. Um, it's a Tennessee number, so uh, feel free to text me, email me, or whatever. But let me just close in prayer and uh, let you get to your 10 o'clock class. Well, Lord, it's been good uh, to be here in the surfboard room, and I'm grateful to be staring at the Pacific Ocean um, as a reminder that um, the waves of, of your mercy are new every morning, and your faithfulness doesn't have an end. So would you be with us as we continue to reimagine what our churches can look like in light of the gospel story rather than the story that we are telling ourselves that we need to be great, we need to be big, um, we need to be celebrities, but rather return to you, O oh God, uh, the author and perfecter of our faith. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you so much, my friends.